cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, November 15th, 2011. Didn't get to that yesterday. Yes, that's one. Yes, yes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think critically, help you to think biblically, well, actually biblically, then critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, uh, false doctrine is the equivalent of poison. False doctrine is the equivalent of weed seeds. You can't get good fruit from weed seeds. You don't go looking on app. Uh, well, here's the deal. Apple trees make apples that make apple seeds, and those apple seeds make apples. Plain and simple. If somebody is a Christian pastor and he's not teaching biblical truth and not teaching sound biblical doctrine, that's the equivalent of trying to get, well, apples to grow from dandelion seeds. The, uh, um, it just doesn't work that way. Um yeah, it's that would be like uh, freakishly impossible. Um, so yeah, so what we do here is we examine the seed, if you would, of what's being uh, preached and taught in many of today's American evangelical churches, and well, churches from across the uh, the world as well. From time to time, we will review churches in New Zealand, Australia, Great Britain, places like that. And uh, the idea here is is we're checking to the high to basically. How do they put it? The genus and species of the seed that's being planted uh, to see if it is really going to produce sound biblical Christians or if it's going to create, well, all kinds of havoc by, well, you know, pl planting weed seeds where there shouldn't be any. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, so um, it, this program is politically incorrect. I step on people's toes. It's not like I'm trying to. It just it, that's the part of the job. So anyway, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I, believe it or not, I've got a, a William Tapley Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. 
Now, it has been a while since uh, I've done a William Tapley 30 Eagle of the Apocalypse update. And uh, and so uh, somebody had put on my Facebook wall that they were concerned about William Tapley because uh, in this month of November, uh, we had, well, evil days, you know, like 11, 11, 11. Now, on previous installments of Fighting for the Faith, that you know that uh, if you've heard them, then you know that... Uh, William Tapley has a penchant for um, numbers, and uh, some numbers are evil, some numbers are good, and uh, he's the only person I know who can do prophetic, um, well, storytelling or divine what's happening in the news by looking at the numbers. And so, uh, well, he's not going to disappoint today, that's all I can say. He's not going to disappoint at all. So uh, we got that. We didn't get to uh, the video that I wanted to get to yesterday from my... Uh, uh, former boss, uh, Dr. James Dobson. And the reason I wanted to play it is because of the supreme confusion of law and gospel in that particular uh, video that's uh, at least worth examining and looking at it in that light. Um, and and then I just have a question. I mean, I, you know, here's the deal. We've heard it said on many occasions here at Fighting for the Faith from these seeker-driven pastors, from churches as notable as Saddleback, uh, Perry Noble's church, uh, and you know those who are buying into the theology taught by Robert Morris in his uh, book, The Blessed Life. In fact, Robert Morris, a word faith heretic, and his uh, teaching regarding tithing has uh, basically taken over as the default theology of the seeker-driven churches. So my question is this. Um, does God truly demand uh, that you give over 10% of the gross of your annual salary to a church that's up to well shenanigans that's probably the uh, the right way of putting it shenanigans and uh, so to give an example of what i mean by that we're going to be going uh, listening in part to a uh, video that i've posted at the museum of idolatry and uh, it is from north point church this is tommy sparger's church out there in uh, it's in missouri and you know just basically asking the question does god demand and that's the right way of putting it. This is their language. Does God demand that uh, that you sacrifice ten percent of your um, of your annual income in order to subsidize and pay for these shenanigans that are going on in these seeker driven churches? You'll you'll hear hear what I'm saying uh, when we get there. I've I've also got news uh, that I want to cover. Uh, <laughs> I rarely steer into politics, but there's a news uh, there's a news story that came to my attention uh, that ran this weekend in the Indianapolis Star uh, regarding um, the Republican uh, presidential candidate Kane. And um, hmm, we're gonna have to take a look at that. And then, have you heard of the new Episcopal uh, bishop? Uh, this woman uh, means to uh, basically bring back. Um, uh, and, and, and make liberalism, liberal theology, uh, liberal churches, uh, you know, bring them back from the dead and and to grow them and prosper them. And uh, and she is an unabashed, unashamed liberal and, uh, and is basically on a mission to uh, to build liberal churches. Um, well, she's in the right denomination, that's for sure. So we'll take a look at that. And then our sermon review today, we've got a bizarre sermon uh, Bill Johnson um, uh, from Bethel in Reading. Um, 
Yeah, I'll save the details for hour number two. So, uh, you know, there's lots of ground to cover today. Make yourself comfortable. Um, again, you know, take all the proper necessary precautions. Uh, somebody did ask me um, that, uh, you know, asked me what they thought the chances were that if they asked their boss uh, to let them don all the appropriate attire and things like that to listen to the program, uh, such as fuzzy bunny slippers and an adult beverage and stuff like that. If the, his boss would, you know, if his boss would let him do all of those things uh, while at work listening to Fighting for the Faith. And so my response, by the way, was uh, pretty straightforward and simple. It's first and foremost, if uh, if you want to somehow acquire the permission of your boss to wear fuzzy bunny slippers and drink an adult beverage while at work listening to Fighting for the Faith. Um, hmm. It's going to be tricky. Um, yeah, that would be very difficult. First and foremost, you're going to have to spend time uh, converting your boss to confessional Lutheranism. And if you uh, succeed in that, then you've got a greater than 2% chance of him allowing you to do the rest. So just, you know, just want to let you all know that. Anyway, so... <laughs> We're just going to dive into the program because I don't want to run out of time. So uh, without any further ado, let's go. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes. Ah, yeah. William Tapley music. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Dummy, serve your own needs. Beat it up and knock speed. Grunt, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter with fear. Fight down. High fire and a fire. Rivers in the seven games. And the government for hire. Yeah, there we go. All right, so um, okay, so William Tapley um, is the gentleman who claims to hear from God directly, and as a result of it, he's come up with some well unique things that he sees in Scripture, and um, and apparently one of the things that he's convinced of is that there are evil dates. They're just uh, just the pure numbers uh, labeled on a particular date. You know, like tomorrow is going to be November. 16th, 11, 16, 11. Now, there's nothing particularly evil about that, but according to William Tapley, there are just certain numbers that are, well, evil. And, well, this month is just chock full of them. And maybe I should let him explain it to you and see if this has anything to do with the Bible. Here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. On this program, I want to look at some of the evil dates which will be occurring during this month of November of the year 2011. Many YouTubers have been speculating on these evil dates and what might occur. You know, the sad part is I completely missed that discussion, man. Had I participated, I would have predicted, like, nothing. I would have said, yeah, these dates will come and go, and probably nothing significant will happen. Of course, we should understand that even the month of November 
has a certain amount of evil to it. Really? I did not know that. Because it is a combination of 9 and 11. November is the 11th month of the year, but it was originally the 9th month of the year. That is, until the Caesars, Julius and Augustus, added two months, that is July and August, to the year. Now we have 12 months. The NOV in November... You know, it's awful nice of God to accommodate that, too. I mean, because, I mean, 10-month years are pretty short, so, you know, I'm glad that God, you know, extended the days, you know, so that we can have a longer year. Stands for nine. November itself is a 9-11 month. So now let's look at the first of these possible evil dates, mm -hmm. and that would be 11-9-11. Okay, that's already passed. Notice that we have both 9-11 in this date yeah. and 9-11 backwards. That is 11-9. So if you backward mask 9-11 to 11-9, you get... Yeah, I'm confused. However, we also need to remember that the last 9-11 event did not occur on any date with 9 or 11 in it. 9-11-2001, um, wasn't that 9-11? And that was the shooting of Gabriel Giffords. That occurred on January the 8th of this year. But why is that significant? Because I have no idea. Because it occurred 119 days after 9-11. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, he had said something about that in a previous video. Uh, so what's the significance of 119 days since 9-11 again? I, I, can you help me out here? And also, don't forget the unfortunate little girl who was murdered by Jared Loftner. She was born on 9-11. So it's possible 9-11 could be an evil date, and I'm uploading this video on the 8th, so we will soon find out. Yeah. Whew. Glad we dodged that bullet. Yeah. No, I don't recall anything significant happening on 11-9-11. Did I miss something? The next evil date in November would be 11-11-11. Right. And I did watch two very interesting videos this past week on the significance of 11-11-11. Yeah. Now, Jonathan Kleck posted a video saying that the Hoover Dam will be blown up on that date. And the last time I checked, that date's in the rearview mirror, so the Hoover Dam is now safe. I mean, see, isn't this great? And it's possible, very likely, that the Hoover Dam will be an, an upcoming false flag event, although it may not occur on that specific date. Mm-hmm. The Lord has verified to me that John he has. Jonathan Cleck is a true prophet. What? So we got a true prophet who predicted 11-11-11 uh, to be the day the Hoover Dam was supposed to be destroyed, and the Hoover Dam's still standing because it's like November 15th, but the Lord revealed to you he's a true prophet. Uh-huh. Now, he does make one error in his videos. Wouldn't that make him a false prophet? And that is as far as Our Lady of Guadalupe goes. And the image he has is not... A true representation. He says if you turn Our Lady of Guadalupe upside down, that the cowl of Mary's head looks like a goat tongue, and the whole image is like a goat. But this is not true. So, Mr. Clack, I advise you to get a true representation of Our Lady of Guadalupe. 
Right. Um, yeah, maybe go back to the photographic archives of the Lady of Guadalupe in order to get a historically accurate representation of her. Because it's nothing like the one that you are showing people. And I am a supporter of yours, so please take this advice to heart. And now I want to talk about another video on 11-11-11 posted by 9-11-A-L-L-O called 11-11-11 means 666. Yeah, um, last time I did math, and I'm really not good with math, but um, 11 and 6, two different numbers there. Um, now, I have known for a long time that the starter numbers on a barcode signify 666. But 9-11 Allo's video also shows that those barcodes also signify 11-11-11. And that means 11-11-11 means 666. Let's take yeah, I was never good with prophetic math. I, you know, I flunked that course when I was in... Uh, I'll take it back. That was an elective, so... Take a closer look. This is a typical barcode found on virtually every product bought or sold throughout the world. Yeah. These two bars signify a six. Yeah. These two bars in the middle signify a six. Right. And these two bars on the end signify a six. So it is. Therefore, every barcode has a six... 66 on it. Gasp. There's no doubt that barcodes are a precursor of the mark of the beast. And you can tell that this is a 6 because this 6 here is symbolized by two narrow bars at this location. Now they don't put the 6 under these bars because they want to pull a fast one on you. When they instituted barcodes they did not want anyone to know that they had used 666 as the starter numbers for every barcode. But the interesting thing is that these two slender bars, which indicate a six, at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of every barcode, also looks like elevens. And therefore... Oh, man. <laughs> so, because a barcode, the beginning, middle, and ending numbers are 666, and they look like the number 11. They look like the number 11 flattened by a steamroller. I mean, it's spaghettified, if you would. Um, apparently, the, um, the, the number 11 got just a little too close to the, um, uh, what is that thing on the black hole? The something horizon. Anyway, you, you get what I'm saying there. Um, yeah, they, and they got spaghettified. They just got, okay, yeah. They look just like 11s that have been flattened by 20,000 pounds of iron. Okay. The 666 is signified by 11-11-11. The next significant date for potential evil this November would be 11-23-11. And why would that be? Now, that is for two reasons. 23 itself is an evil number. Oh, yeah. I hate 23, man. It's evil. Stinking 23, man. It's just, every time I get around the number 23, I just feel evil. Uh-huh, okay. It signifies also 666. It does, okay. Because 2 before 3 symbolizes man before God. Uh. <laughs> 2 is a number for man. 3 is a number for God. 
and 2 before 3 or over 3 equals 0.666. In so do you think that in the new earth that God will, um, well, basically outlaw the number 23? I, I'm just curious. Mathematics. And of course... You know what I think he'll do? He'll throw the number 23 into the lake of fire along with the devil and his angels. 666 is the number of the Antichrist. But the 23rd of this November is also interesting because it is another alignment of Comet Elenin and the Earth and the Sun. Um, Comet Elenin exploded. It, it basically fell apart. You're still hanging on to that thing? And as we know, on three previous alignments, there were terrible earthquakes that coincided with alignments with Elenin. And those earthquakes were in Japan, New Zealand, and Chile. Will there be another earthquake on that date, or something even worse? And the third significance of this evil date is that it's the first anniversary of North Korea's attack on South Korea. That's right, the beginning of World War III. Uh, seems to have fizzled out a little bit. Uh... Which, as you, my regular subscribers, know, is, in my estimation, the official beginning of World War III. Right. Despite the fact there's no troop mob mobilization going on, uh, you can't name a single front uh, in World War III, at least any kind of a war front at all that exists between any allied and Axis. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but we're, we're in the throes of World War III right now. Okay. And please don't think that the evil people who run this world do not take these evil numbers very seriously. And I'm sure they sit around in smoke-filled rooms thinking about all the evil that they can wreak on the earth and then going, what's a good day for evil plan number one? Let's consult our day planner. Well, we better go to the evil month of November. Well, November 9th has already passed. November 11th has already gone. I know. Ooh, look at that. 11-23. Evil personified. Look at that. It's the number two in front of the number three. That's man before God. Oh, yes. Let's launch our latest evil plan on 11-23-11. Because that's what we evil people do. We look for evil dates to launch our evil plans. <laughs> Sorry, that hurt. Yep. Um... Pray for um, William Tapley. Pray that his family takes away his camcorder and his YouTube account. I'm, that's all I can really say. Okay, so uh, moving along here, um, just got a question for you. We've all heard the theological um, backpinning, if you would, of the seeker-driven movement's obsession with tithing. Apparently, if you don't tithe, your money is cursed. It's cursed by God because God is sitting up in heaven and he has set the world up in such a way that if you have become a Christian and you are a member of a church, that every penny, every dollar, every single red cent that you work so hard to earn is automatically cursed. 
it falls under the curse, and the destroyer will come and destroy your life. The destroyer will make your children disobedient. The destroyer will make your wife unhappy and unsatisfied. The destroyer will make your Toyota car, even though it's supposed to be reliable, completely fritz out and die after only 18,000 miles. You will get flat tires. You will lose your job. You will be dissatisfied. You will experience unhappiness like you've never experienced before. All because your money is cursed. Until you give the very, 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 first 10% to your seeker-driven church. And then, and only then, if you give the very, 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 first 10% to your local seeker-driven church, will you redeem your money? from the curse. Therefore, ensuring that you will receive God's tangible and intangible blessings and favor, including well-adjusted children who do well on their SAT, wives who are, well, very satisfied and happy, cars that run for 300,000 miles before needing their first oil change, things of that nature. So so here's the deal. That's their theology. We've played these sound bites a gazillion times here at Fighting for the Faith, and I've got a whole scat of them ready to roll again on another edition of Fighting for the Faith, but I just can't quite bring myself to play them again. But here's the point. Um... When you look at what goes on in these seeker-driven churches, um, the question is, really, God demands that I fork over the very ten, first 10% of every dollar that I earn, that I have to give it over to my seeker-driven pastor so that my neighbors can basically indulge themselves in a perpetual junior high drama that takes place there at that seeker-driven church. Uh, here's, um, here's what I mean. Um, this is at the Museum of Idolatry. Listen in. shall be found without the soul for getting down. Must lock inside a corpse's shell. The foulest stench is in the air. The funk of 40,000 years. And though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver. For no mere mortal can resist the evil of the river. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there at North Point Church, um, it's Tommy Sparger's church out there in Missouri, um, they recently performed Thriller. Now, if you want to see this, you can see it at the Museum of Idolatry, a little11.com. The name of the um, exhibit is North Point Thriller, question mark. Um, so here they've got all the uh, local folks uh, who attend this seeker-driven church uh, all dressed up in their best Thriller garb and getting ready to perform the dance that goes along with Michael Jackson's 
Thriller. Now, keep in mind, Michael Jackson is not there, and they are not using a Michael Jackson recording. The North Point Church Praise Band is uh, providing the background music for this performance. Um, Yeah, just hang on. I'm pretty sure these folks wouldn't make it on Broadway. I don't think they can make it on So You Think You Can Dance either. Alright, I mean, can't you... Bet you can't wait to see your neighbors performing Thriller, right? That was bad. Um, hmm. Makes you wonder if they took the neighborhood cat and killed it for that note. Where's the werewolf sound when you need it? Oh! Is that bad? Okay, enough, enough. Oh, wow, that was bad. Okay, so the quite so here's the deal. Okay, see, I'm beginning to wonder if these seeker-driven churches are really just places for people without talent. To pretend that they're TV stars or that you know that they're you know they're famous or something like that, so they can have a pseudo experience of living out their Hollywood dreams. Um, but the one thing is certain about these uh, these churches is that they're like a perpetual, never-ending junior high drama production, just with cooler lights and smoke machines. And but the thing is, is that these are very expensive, perpetual, never-ending junior high drama productions. And um, so, you know, again, I, I come back to the point I'm asking, um, you know, kind of setting us up here is um, the, why do I say that these are very expensive? Because, well, the cost of admission to these churches, if you really want to, you know, regularly attend there is that you have to be willing to fork over 10 percent of your gross income right off the top to these churches. So I ask the question, if pretend, yeah, I don't know how much y'all make, but let's say you make $60,000 per year. You know, that's your annual income. Is attending a perpetual, never-ending junior high production, a drama production, like what goes on at these seeker-driven churches, is it really worth $6,000 a year for you to sit through these third-rate junior high-level drama productions followed by... Um, a, a self-help pop psychology pep talk with four to five Bible verses ripped out of context and baptizing this pep talk in order to make it look like a sermon. And more importantly, here's the question. Does God really demand? Demand. Does God really curse 
your money until you redeem it by sacrificing 10% of it to, well, to support that. It doesn't sound anything like the God of the Bible. Nothing like it. I mean, why on earth would God demand that I fork over 10% off the top of my gross annual income to support a very expensive, perpetual, never-ending junior high drama production also known as a seeker-driven church service? Doesn't make a bit of sense to me. Does it make any sense to you? Just something to think about. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, 
vision. Okay, and... okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if you think that you can earn God's blessing by paying for it, you don't understand the gospel, period. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send that to Post Office Box uh, box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. By the way, yesterday I was was trying to keep watching the news to see if I could... uh, make any uh, find out who was going to win the bidding war for the crystal cathedral well at, at the moment that is still up in the air uh, a, a judge says that the decision will be made on Thursday so now i got to wait until Thursday to figure this out but anyway it just thought i'd let you all know that because yesterday i was you know caught up in that story but anyway moving along um my uh, former employer uh, dr james dobson i used to work at focus on the family uh, back when they were in pomona california um, has uh, basically said some things, uh, statements made in a DVD that's out there called One Nation Under God. And I want you to hear it. And the reason I want you to hear it is because there's some major theological confusion going on here um, regarding politics in the United States. And uh, I, I'd like to challenge uh, Dr. Dobson you know, uh, regarding some of the things he says. Here, listen in. 
Many people look at where our country has been heading for a while, and they think that our best days are behind us. What would you say to that? Well, I hate to agree with them, but in some ways, I do. Um, Man, tough for me to watch this because he is looking so old and so feeble. I um, am most concerned about the drift away from Christian principles. If we forget who we are as a nation, if we forget the scriptural and, and biblical heritage that brought us to this point, there's nothing that says God has to bless us like he has. I mean, well, he's not obligated to do that. And so our future depends on our past and especially where we are now. Are we going to continue to honor God with the holy living that he prescribes for us? If we don't, we're in serious trouble. And Okay, got to stop right there. Okay, let, let me, I'm going to challenge this on two levels. Number one. He says that we've got to remember who we are. The problem is this. Biblically and theologically, Scripture teaches that every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. And worse than that, it's a, it's a hostile dead. You are born at war with God. God is your enemy when you're born, when you're conceived. And it's not that he's hostile against you. You're hostile against him. You are born a child of the devil, so to speak. And so here's the deal. Each and every child, each and every generation that's born and is coming up through the ranks of the United States, if you expect them to be producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life, they need to be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus' name. Because you can't produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life without the Holy Spirit. Jesus says you know, to abide in him. I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we've got a problem. We've got a big problem. And I think this, this video, I mean, this little snippet here, in just a minute and 46 seconds, demonstrates one of the major theological problems with what was known as the religious right. Somehow this belief that it's that if we, uh, if we want to be blessed by God, then we have to honor God with holy living. But holy living is a fruit of repentance and faith and trust in Christ. You understand what I'm saying? He's got the cart before the horse here. And if you here's the deal. I mean, do you think that God is pleased with pagans who do not trust in him? That have they have no faith in him, they are not trusting him for the forgiveness of their sins, but who live well if, if, if on the bell curve of morality, are, are live above the norm, you know, and maybe in the fiftieth or fifty you first, know, fifty second, fifty third percentile of those moral of moral people in the United States, you think God is pleased with that? Is that how God blesses the United States? Because a, a certain percentage of people live above the median in their morality. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, 
it's impossible to please God. And Romans chapter 8 makes it clear that our sinful nature is hostile against God. It does not submit to God's law, and in fact, it cannot do so. So we've got a problem here. It's this under, it's this, this backwards understanding that somehow God blesses the United States because people live moral lives. No one lives a moral life. A moral life is basically defined as the person who lives God's law perfectly. Because if you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. So we got a problem here. And I think Dr. Dobson succinctly gave us an understanding of his theology that shows that it's pure works righteousness and that we earn God's blessing by our moral behavior. Now, the reality is, is that none of us keeps the law. Now, it is true that God punishes sin and that there are clear scriptures that say that the land vomits people out of them because of their iniquity and their sin. God judged the uh, the people, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the uh, all the uh, all the ites that were living in the land of Canaan. God judged them and kicked them out of the land because of their wickedness. They earned God's wrath. But just because God punishes sin does not mean biblically that the solution then is to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and just obey. Instead, we need to be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ, faith and trust in Christ. Only then can you begin to make any kind of progress in true bearing of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Right now, I think we are. Whenever countries have forgotten who they are, and especially the principles uh, that have been taught in Scripture. Uh, they um, did pay, pay a price for it, and I think we will too. Uh, I happen to see this particular election cycle as absolutely critical. Uh, we're going to find out pretty quick which direction we're going. And uh, if it's going to be as it's been in the past, uh, I hate to say it, but we deserve what's going to happen to us. So apparently um, this election season will determine whether or not God's going to let us have it. Yeah, I'm sorry. The solution is not that. The solution is the church needs to get back on topic. And the topic is preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. Okay, moving along. From the Huffington Post, the headline reads, Herman Cain says, God convinced me to run for president. Ah. All right, I'm going to play the audio from the video here. Here we go. When I finally realized that it was God saying that this is what I needed to do, I was like, Moses, you got the wrong man, Lord. Are you sure? Now, you're not supposed to doubt God, but I'm going, 
I think maybe you're looking at somebody else. Maybe you, maybe it was Josh you were trying to get, and not me. I don't know. Somebody over my shoulder. Should I get out of the way? But once I made the decision, I, I didn't look back. So that's um, Herman Cain, GOP presidential candidate, basically saying that God convinced him to run for uh, for the presidential office. And he's likened himself to Moses and to Joshua. Um, yeah, here's the deal. Um, that, if you believe that, then not voting for Cain is uh, to not vote for God's man. And um, yeah, I got a big problem with that. A big problem. Because, you know, if I had, well, <laughs> let's just put it this way. If I had a nickel for every single uh, person that I heard that I've heard saying that they've heard God's voice, um, well, I'd be a wealthy man just in nickels. Um, yeah, this sounds to me shamelessly like religious manipulation, and um, yeah, I'm not buying it. I don't think Cain's Herman Cain's heard the voice of God. Like at all, and I am completely skeptical and cynical of any politician, right or left, who basically is trying to run their campaign off the presupposition that God is the one who told them personally to run for office. Um, yeah, I'm just not buying it. Okay, moving along. From the Christian Post, the uh, headline reads, New D.C. Episcopal Bishop Seeks to Build Up the Liberal Church. This is by Michael uh, Grabowski of the uh, Christian Post. And good night. Um, yeah, if, ha- have you heard of this uh, this new gal, the Reverend Marion uh, Bud? Buddy, I don't know how you pronounce her last name. Have you heard about this gal? Uh, well, let me let me read some of the details here from the Christian Post story. The Reverend Marianne Bud, I'll call her Bud, uh, the newly consecrated and seated bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington wants to make a stronger voice for progressive Christians. Quote, I want to build up the liberal church again so we can be a legitimate conversation partner in the public arena, religiously said Bud to the Washington Post, uh, Michelle Boorstein. Bud states that she believed that this public arena is presently dominated by evangelical Christians and what many would call the Christian right, and I would agree. It's legitimate for them to be there, but they're drowning us out, said Bud. In in talking with the Washington Examiner, Bud spoke of supporting full inclusion of gay and lesbian people in every aspect of the life of the church and of our society. My guess is that in five to ten years, this issue will be behind us. I really do, she told the Examiner. Bud was elected by the Washington Diocese in June, having previously served as the rector for St. John's Episcopal Church in Minneapolis. Quote, the community of St. John's is delighted that Bishop Marianne has this new role, said Kate McKinnon, senior warden of St. John's Episcopal Church, in an interview with the Christian Post. Quote, we will miss her terribly, but we have known for some time that she was destined for work in the greater church. She will be an incredible asset to the Diocese of Washington, D.C., as well as the wider Episcopal Church. McKinnon said that, 
As rector at St. John's, Bud helped develop a number of outreach, inclusion, and social justice ministries. This included, according to McKinnon, partnering with local organizations to help families in need, providing medical aid to Haiti and Guatemala, and incorporating youth and church services. While the Diocese of Washington consecrates Bud's uh, conservative Episcopalians, like the American Anglican Council, look on with concern. Well, they should. Uh, Robert Lundy, communications officer for the AAC, took uh, exception to Bud's statement that she wants to build up the liberal church. What happened to building up Christ's church, Lundy asked the Christian Post, adding that he considered the statement to be ridiculous. Regarding how Bud became bishop would affect the AAC, Lundy said that in a twisted way, it's going to help us. Lundy went on to explain that if Bud continues to advance the Episcopal Church's biblical revisionism and say things like her remarks regarding the liberal church, it will serve to help differentiate between churches that are faithful to the Bible and churches that are not. The Reverend Marianne Bud officially became bishop of the Washington Diocese on Saturday, making her the first woman to hold that position. The consecration of Bud as Bishop of the Diocese of Washington was the first event to take place at the National Cathedral since the East Coast earthquake on August 23rd. While structure remains, the structure remains sound, the damaged stone has been removed. A complete restoration may not be complete until 2021. So there you go. This uh, new uh, bishop there in Washington, D.C., Marianne Bud. Could be Buddy, I don't know, but... um. She's uh, basically determined to rebuild the liberal churches, to make them a voice again. And she's all about inclusive inclusion of gays and lesbians and gay marriage and things like that. Well, she's not a bishop. She never was really a pastrix, the biblical office of pastors for men only. And here's what happens, Okay. This, I mean, I'm sorry, but these church, the churches that are out there trying to push for, uh, you know, you know, ordination of women and stuff like that. This is what happens. They get into the church, and uh, their agenda is not to sound biblical doctrine, because the very fact that they're there shows that the Bible has been compromised, has been uh, basically mishandled, misapplied, and and God's word is not reigning in those churches. And is it any wonder then that you know, as these uh, liberal pastrixes grow in their careers, that they put on their agenda as number one thing to also include homosexuals and gays and things like that, because they don't have the Bible as their authority. They don't bend the knee to God's word. They despise God's word. They revise God's word. They ignore God's word. They attack God's words. They they malign God's word. And undermining it at every single possible point, except for the point where uh, where there's verses that talk about you know something about feeding the poor, or social justice. Those have to be taken literally. And what gets lost in all of this? A clear and clarion call. A call for sinners to repent of their sins and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The church becomes a busy, busy beehive of social justice and and getting busy in the community. What it doesn't happen is Christ being proclaimed and repentance and the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed in his name to all nations and people being discipled in God's word. Because one of the things I've learned about these types of churches, they spend an inordinate amount of time in church or at church functions 
attacking the Bible and telling people why they shouldn't believe it. It's weird. It's absolutely mind-boggling that these churches do this, but that's what they do. Because God and his word is their enemy. He, The real God, the God of the Bible, is the enemy of these churches. They don't want to have anything to do with the God who is. They don't want to bend the knee. They don't like him. They don't love him. So they've invented their own God. And they've got they've surrounded themselves with pastors and pastrixes and female bishops who will ensure that the God that they like, the one of their own imaginations, is the one that's proclaimed and announced and preached, but not the God of the Bible. And so you've you know you, you, I mean think of it this way I mean you, you you're all familiar with uh, the HIV virus the uh, human immunodeficiency virus the the virus that causes AIDS right one of the things about that virus is that it attacks white blood cells and guts them and then hides itself inside of white blood cells so that other white blood cells don't attack those the the virus. Because the the human body is amazing in its ability to tackle foreign viruses and bacteria and things like that. I mean, the white blood cells, they're the soldiers in the blood system. Well, what these churches do is they take over a church. They gut it of its theology. They attack and get rid of God's word. And then they replace it with a spiritual virus. A disease, false doctrine, a false god, all all surrounded by the trappings of uh, what looks like a church, right? But they're not advancing the kingdom of God. Instead, they're attacking the body of Christ. That's what these liberal churches are. They're like the HIV virus for the body of Christ, and they're killing it. And if men and people in the church don't rise up and answer this, then the visible church will continue to be sickly and diseased and ineffective because the biblical gospel isn't being preached, sound doctrine isn't being taught, God's word's being attacked and maligned. And what, how is this happening? by churches that have been taken over by false doctrine and demons. That's what this is. So, anyway, I, I, I hope I wasn't too subtle there. I just want to make sure that you, everybody understands that what I think about false doctrine and churches that, well, put on the trappings of a Christian church and teach false doctrine, they're a disease. And they're killing the body of Christ here in the United States and abroad. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? 
Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, if you can call it that, comes to us via Bethel Church in Redding, California. Bill Johnson presiding. The name of the prophetic utterance, I don't know what to call this thing, is called Screwed in Right. Now, it's been a while since we've reviewed a sermon from Bill Johnson. I think the last time we did, it was his Easter sermon. And the name of that one was, I Tried. And what you're going to notice is is that, uh, well, two things I want you to pay close attention to. One, um, notice that he speaks uh, what he thinks God is speaking into us is his heart as if it's supposedly on par with Scripture itself. Two... He twists the scripture to be about you, not about Christ. About you in the sense that the glory is all about you. Apparently you're the light of the world, not Christ. Yeah, I I know, you just got to hear it to believe it. So um, let me kill the music here, and without any further ado, here is Bill Johnson and his attempt at something sermony called Screwed In Right. If you want to have your Bible open to maybe like Isaiah chapter 60, I think that's where he's going to go with this thing. 
Uh, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, and that's where he's going to sort of kind of maybe-ish preach something about the Bible, kind of, but it's really about you. Here we go. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So fun. Uh, why don't you take your Bibles? Let's open to uh, Isaiah 60. I'm going to have uh, three portions of Scripture that we'll look at. I think we'll get to all three. Uh, John chapter 1 and Malachi 4. All right? Isaiah 60, John 1 and Malachi 4. By the way, I felt uh, uh, Benny gave me this uh, prophetic word from Doug Addison, who is a, just a great, great man, great prophetic voice in our country. And uh, he said, this is what he said. He said, God spoke to me, and he said that because the enemy had overplayed his hand so strongly starting 2002, the children born in 2002... Uh, including uh, 2001, 2002, will be used greatly and have a high destiny in their lives. These young people have a high level of creativity. Many of them have already experienced a great deal of trial and resistance. Uh, many of them will begin moving in a greater level of wisdom and anointing over the next couple of years. This was uh, as a result of the enemy uh, trying to bring a discouragement and a loss of hope and vision over a nation through 9-11. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, so so we begin the sermon with him saying that he's heard a prophetic vision from somebody talking about the generation of kids growing up in, like, what, 2002, 2003, that apparently um, God is going to do something great with them because the devil overplayed his hand in 2001. God is separating for a unique purpose as a retaliation, as a as a, uh, that hope always wins out, the faith always wins, uh, uh, that sense of victory always wins out for the people of God. So, oh, man. I, I mean, what, I mean, what do you, what do you do with something like this? Um, <clears throat> before we get too far, I would like to read to you from a real prophet of God, the prophet Jeremiah. And what he prophesied regarding false prophets via the word of the Lord directly. Isaiah, it's from Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to start at verse 9 and read for a little bit here. And, uh, and see you know, what God thinks of false prophets. Verse 9. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up, their course is evil, their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly, and in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore... Their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. 
They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually in those, to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in the secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name, for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Apparently, um, God doesn't look favorably on false prophets who prophesy their own dreams and visions. And the funny thing is, is that Bill Johnson is just kind of one extreme example of this. But another perfect example of this would be the seeker-driven movement. They don't turn people from their wickedness. They tell them that they have a prodigy within them. Or Joel Osteen, who says, God is for you. All you have to do is believe in yourself and you'll have God's favor. These are people that God did not send. They are preaching lies to people. And God is against them, not for them. 
because they are not turning people from their evil. They're not preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And as a result of it, they're saying God is for these people, despite the fact that they persist in sin and unbelief. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible calls men to repent and to be forgiven. And the cost of their forgiveness was the very life of the Son of God. And so here we are. We're starting off in a church that's the flagship church of this new apostolic reformation stuff. And right right to start off the sermon, we're beginning with some kind of so-called dream or vision that somebody had that, you know, talking about how God's going to retaliate against Satan's overplaying of his hand in evil in 9-11 on, in 2001 and raise up a generation of people that are he's going to set apart for a special work. To which I say, hog wash. Yahweh did not give you this dream. Yahweh didn't speak these words. And they're taking the focus off of Christ and putting it on ourselves. We continue. How many of you have children uh, in that, that, age, that age range? Just extend a hand towards them right now and just pray that the Lord would release a wisdom and a grace for the parenting skills and uh, a unique wisdom as they raise these children. Every children has have great potential. Every child has great potential. But we prophesy this word of great wisdom, extraordinary insight, great anointing for a unique purpose, that they would live as demonstrations of hope uh, to a culture that in many ways has lost hope. We give you thanks for these kids. We give you thanks for making us rich with children of all ages. But we do pray for a special protection around these kids and a great wisdom on the parents in Jesus' name. And we just declare the blessing of the Lord over you, over your household, for the honor of the name Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Wow. I had uh, a very unique experience in 1979 and you will notice that a number of us go to Isaiah 60 every once in a while just to talk again and I in recent days especially since Toronto to be honest since the outpouring and and I would stand in line and so many people would be touched so powerfully physically by the presence and power of the Lord I didn't always understand how the Lord worked and really discounted my own encounter with the Lord and I have since learned to uh, learned of him and learned to recognize that in my own life, there are times where what he does in me is not a dramatic demonstration of power, but he actually touches me in the realm of inspired thought. And it has to be valued equally because I, in fact, this last week I was in Pennsylvania with Randy Clark and um, we had two conferences. Actually, one was the leader's advance. Uh, we had uh, some speakers from Brazil and myself. And then uh, this last one was with the Revival Alliance. The whole group of uh, leadership from Revival Alliance came to this conference, and Larry Randolph as well, and had a wonderful time. Jesus Culture, uh, their leading worship, Martin Smith from Delirious, those of you who recognize these names. It was a glorious week, 4,000-plus people involved in that event. But um, I, I remember sitting in one of these meetings with a, a Brazilian uh, pastor that, that was speaking, and this anointing for inspired thought, it's a revelatory thing 
when it comes, I have to have a pencil or pen and paper quickly to write. And if you look at my Bible, you see paper sticking out everywhere. I just need to travel with a journal instead of these papers. But um, um, the, the point is, is I, it, it comes so quickly in that environment. And if you don't recognize how God happens to work in you and through you, you, you will... You will put your attention on what somebody else is getting and lose sight of what you're getting. Does that make sense? And I've had to recalibrate my, my, my focus, my, uh, value system to realize he touches everybody differently. And I don't need to judge another person's experience. I learned that a long time ago. But neither do I need to be jealous in the sense that they get something that I don't. Because anyone who's hungry, he visits. He never turns away a hungry person. And Mm-hmm. And where are you getting this information? What are you talking about? So God is going to make sure if you are hungry for uh, direct spiritual experiences of him, he's going to make sure that you get fed that. You got a biblical passage that says anything of the sort? Coming to the Lord Jesus' door that hasn't eaten in a week and is needs food, you can't imagine him not feeding them. It's the same and even more so with spiritual hunger. And so he touches every single person that comes to him. It's just he does it differently. Sometimes it's visible. Sometimes it's outward. Sometimes it's extreme. Sometimes it's very subtle. But he always touches those who come to him. Yes, Jesus, we thank you for that. I thank you that everybody, everybody gets touched. I had a lady write me once. She said, I just... It was really funny. She came to my hotel room and asked me to pray for her. She said, the Lord told me to come to you and, and uh, have you pray for me. So he didn't tell me. And it's it real awkward to have somebody come you know, to your hotel room and, and ask. To, it, it wasn't the sexual thing. It wasn't that, but it was still weird. So I said, come to me at the meeting tonight. And she wrote me later, said, I'm satisfied to eat the crumbs off the table. And I said, now you're stuck with a full meal like the rest of us. There's, 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 none, of this, there's none of this crumbs off the floor stuff. You, you, you're going to get treated like everybody else. And, and sometimes we get this, this, uh, this thing that acts out of fear and insecurity rising up. And I just want you to know, if you shake, rattle, and roll, glory to God. If you stand like the rock of Gibraltar, Jesus is touching you deeply. And I really could care less what it looks like on the inside. I've, I've been in lines where the people pray down the line, they skip me and go to somebody else. You know, it's like, uh, we don't want to waste our time on him, you know. <clears throat> so I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I understand it. May of 1979 is where this kind of thing really started for me in a unique way. I was in the back of the church in Weaverville. I was praying. I would go in early and I would pray. I would walk through the sanctuary. My office was too small. And I, I like to walk when I pray. So I would walk and pray. And I began to read out of Isaiah 60. And the Lord spoke to me um, very subtly, very softly. Now notice he's saying that the Lord spoke to him, not in Isaiah 60, but spoke to him about Isaiah 60. Uh-huh. Clearly. And it was one of those moments, it was, I, I liken it often, I've talked about this many times, so forgive me for being redundant and repeating things, but for the sake of those that haven't heard, and for the purpose of reminding, it was as though I was walking and there was a burning bush, and, and the Bible says when Mo So he was walking and it was like a burning bush, so he, you know, he, he's like Moses too. Moses turned aside, God spoke. And what happened in my own life is I noticed this passage and I began to read it, and something leapt in my heart, and I, I, it was like embracing a, a burning bush. I turned aside, and God began to download. And I can tell you absolute, with absolute complete confidence, since that day in May of 1979, my entire life has been affected 
by this chapter. Oh, so so you've had a major experience in a download from, directly from heaven through a very subtle voice of God speaking to you directly, but somehow it was connected to this passage. Uh-huh. It has had that profound of an effect on me. It has snowballed. It has increased in impact. And uh, I'm not going to uh, b- begin to try to teach uh, out of this whole ch- chapter. I just want to take a few verses. Yeah, I know, because context would make it so that you couldn't make it about them if you preached the whole thing. Because of an idea that I want to share with you, a thought. Um, I don't know, uh, for years I, I would refer to this chapter every, every once in a while. In fact, I, th- I think it was probably a couple of years in Waverville, I, you know, I probably came back to it every other week. I mean, it had that kind of an impact on me. And it's a long story, I won't go into it now, but um, it starts with these hope-filled verses, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. Okay, can I, can I point out the obvious? This is not Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. This is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Now, let me just ask you a question. Okay, let's pretend that you've never read The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, and you've never watched the movies based upon the books by Tolkien uh, on The Lord of the Rings. Some of you, this, this isn't pretending. This is just reality, okay? Now... For the sake of this uh, argument, let's pretend that you decide that you're going to finally sit down and watch the movies based upon the books, The Lord of the Rings. Do you go and grab disc one from the first set, or do you grab disc three from the last movie, The Return of the King, and then begin it, you know, hit play or, you know, fast forward to the ch- to the last four chapters before the end of the movie. Okay. Answer. Um, well, if you wanted to really actually sit down and understand what's going on, you don't begin with the third movie um, 90% of the way through it. You begin with disc one. And you work your way up to that point so that when you get to that point, you understand the whole flow and context of what's going on. So here we got Bill Johnson attempting to preach a biblical sermon based upon Isaiah chapter 60. And, well, we've got a problem because Isaiah chapter 60 begins with these words, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Who's God talking to? Um, what's going on here? Am I going to be able to figure that out just by reading from this verse? In order to understand what it is that the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write, you're going to need to understand what's going on in the chapters preceding this. And if you don't give that background, then this verse is not really, when he's preaching, he's not really engaging in biblical preaching. He's using this text 
to create the pretext that he's actually biblically teaching so that he can pour into this passage anything he wants. Who is God telling to arise and shine? What's the context of this? And the reality is, is that on this radio program, um, in this sermon review, I don't have the entire, I don't have the time necessary to give you all of the background on this. But let me give you what the notes say from the Lutheran Study Bible on this. Isaiah chapter 60, here's the note. It says, The way to glory is the transfiguration of mankind's gloom into the radiance of salvation. In chapters 58 and 59, Isaiah declared the way of peace, which was barred to all those who chose to love wickedness more than they loved the Redeemer. Now in chapter 60, the road to blessed communion with the Creator is bathed in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, verse 6. This highway of lights is to emerge out of Israel's liberation from Babylonian slavery and the rebuilding of the city of David. So that's kind of the, the overall picture of what's taking place in Isaiah chapter 60. So here's the note on chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Through the Redeemer, the people are brought out of the darkness of their sins, see chapter 59, verses 9 through 10, and into the light of God's salvation. Cross-reference this with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, verse 10, and verse 12. Also from the New Testament, Luke 1, 78 through 79, chapter 2, verse 32, John 1, 14, 17, 4, verse 22, Romans 8, 17, and so on. Okay? Arise and shine. The prophet rouses Israel from the dark night of sin and captivity. God's creative word then enlightens them like a match lighting a candle. See Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. Next, nations shall come to your light. Although God shows judgment through darkness upon the nations, Israel will bask in the light that graciously draws the nations to God. Now, I'm reading all of this here to kind of point out what's going on. And that is, is that this sermon, if you can even call it that, begins with some prophetic vision that he claims he received from a friend of his. Now he's talking about how important this passage has been in his life, but what this passage meant historically and what this passage means in context doesn't matter a bit to Bill Johnson. Nope. He's just going, by ripping this out of context, starting at the end of the story, there's no context in your mind. So now he's able to manipulate manipulate this passage and make it about anything that he wants. And believe me, he's going to make it about anything other than Jesus. We continue. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. Catch that phrase. His glory will be seen upon you. Now, there are many who 
it's, it's difficult for so many to go through the Old Testament and try to figure out what belongs to us, what belongs to Israel, what belongs in the Old Testament is still supposed to stay there, and what is prophetic in nature for the new. And, and, uh, and, and, and tremendous messes are created by people that just don't understand those boundaries. And I, I have great sympathy for, for anyone making those mistakes. But I would like for you to just take a look at John chapter 1. And then I'm going to go back to Isaiah 60, so don't lose that place. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Why was John sent? We know John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner, correct? To prepare the way of the Lord. Are you, are you alive and awake? All right. He was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. We know that's why he was sent. But this passage tells us why, why the, really why he was sent. He was sent so that all might believe. It's, it's right here. It's, it's actually in your Bibles. It's, uh, I, I, I encourage you to take note of all the alls. All y'all. All the alls, because the alls are absolute, they're large, and they're supposed to expand our heart, expand our vision, and enable us to grab hold of divine purpose. This says, John the Baptist came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, so that all through him, through the light, through Jesus, might believe. Verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light (laughs) to every man coming into the world. All right, verse 8 and 9, read it again. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light. There's a predominant theme here, in case you haven't picked it up. The true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, that's fascinating by itself. Every person born into this world has an encounter. I don't know if it's in the womb. I don't know if it's right after birth. But every person has an encounter with the light of God in some measure. Now he's engaging in eisegesis. Okay, let's read this in context. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh. You can say a human decision. That's another way of putting it. Nor of the will of man, but born of God. Who's this passage about? It's about Jesus. Right? We continue. Just for reference sake, if you want to study this sometime, there's three witnesses given to every person of who God is. It's written in creation. It's written in the law that's written in the heart. And it's here. Jesus, the light who enlightens every person who comes into the world. All right. Now, this is the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. Is there a bigger light coming? (laughs) There are so many folks, they read this in Isaiah 16. They say, well, it's talking about another time. It's talking about the millennium. It's talking about heaven. It's talking about this, talking about that. Isaiah was pointing into the future saying there's a light coming that's going to enlighten people. And that is that glory. And that glory is going to come, and it's going to arise on people, and it's going to rest upon people. This is the prophecy. Jesus comes along, and John says he's the light that enlightens everyone. Hebrews says he is the glory of the Father. He's that glory that is to shine upon his people. This is a right now word. And this word defines your who you are, who we are as people, our purpose, and our destiny. This is a word that connects us to those three realms. Arise, shine. Why does he command arise, shine? Because they're not up. They're laying down. (laughs) Profound, I know. I I, I know. He tells them to arise because they're not up, because they're laying down? What are you talking about? you why would somebody come to somebody else and say get up because they're not up come back to the side why 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 would he say get up because they're not and why would he say shine okay you're flowing with me now this is good all right now think through this he would not commit they were not realizing what had happened to them they, they didn't understand the fullness of what had been accomplished for them. And so they said, arise and shine. Didn't say reflect. It doesn't say arise, reflect. He says arise, shine. Because when you've been touched by the light of God, you become light. I don't mean you become God. I mean you become light. You become a living example of what Jesus is. That's why in John 7 and John 4, you can take a drink of the water of God and you become a river. Whatever you touch in God changes who you are. It's not merely experience to be put back into your history, to write in your journal. It changes who you are and your capacity to function in his name in this world. Arise, shine. Why? Because your light's already come. Stop laying there waiting for something else to happen. If you'll get up, you'll be able to shine. 
Take the right posture. Why? Because then you'll find out you're radiating. And you can shine because your light's already come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The absolute target of the Lord is for you and me to live in glory. Not in heaven. That's coming. But that's not within our... We're not commanded to go there. He'll get us there. It's not, it's not something I have to do. I have assignments. So when I hear people spend their, their time talking about what he's going to do, that's wonderful because it's encouraging. But, but I also want to know what my assignment is. I want to make sure that I know how to be faithful. Arise, shine. Why? Because your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Listen to this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. The glory was the original target of God for every, every person. We were designed, wired, created to be able to live in perfect harmony in cooperation with the glory. What is the glory? It's the manifested presence. It's the external outward manifestation of Jesus. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord... It's risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the people, but his glory will appear upon you. I don't understand this. I just want to describe it. If you'll get up and let what's in you out, what's out there, what's beyond you will come on you. Now at this point, by you'll notice every single time he interacts with the passage, he changes it just a little bit, so that now we're, he's saying something that's completely ridiculous and doesn't make sense when you read the passage in context. Um, and you, but the way he got there was by circling the passage and changing it ever so slightly each time he circled it. Now we're got we're into the ridiculous. <laughs> uh, don't quote me on that because I didn't say that real well, but I, I, I hope you got the picture. There's something in you that is released. Jesus said the kingdom is within you. He described the Holy Spirit in you. He, he said, "Drink of me, and that drink will become a river." So here you receive, and from within, you, He changes our capacity and our nature of what we are able to release into the world. It's the most bizarre example, one of the most. This passage doesn't say anything about what we can release into the world. You're releasing false doctrine into the church. Bizarre examples in the Bible. Here, take a drink. Okay, now you've got a river inside of you. How did a cup become a river? Only in the kingdom, but the kingdom is within you. So he says, all right, get up. Why? Because you can't take the place you're supposed to take in the world laying down. Stand up. The text doesn't say that. Now shine. In that posture, just shine. Just do your best. You don't have to groan. You know, these lights, none of them are travailing right now, trying to release light. It's just who they are. It's their nature. If you'll get up, you'll shine. Just, just take your position. Don't wait. Don't wait for something so you can act. Act. So that something will come. Oh, man. I, this isn't biblical preaching. This is all just gibberish. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. 
Darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness. That deep darkness is mental depression. You see any of that going on? Might be a good time to get. So the deep darkness that's covering the earth isn't sin and wickedness. It's it's mental depression. Just take some Prozac and and then stand up and shine, so that you can release things into the world. Just be who you are. You know, drink the cup and you'll become a river. Now, why would he have you get up when there's darkness all around you? To shine. But why would he want you to shine in the midst of darkness? So that those who are bound by darkness will no longer be bound by darkness, right? And the Lord has made this promise. Now, this may be abstract to you. I, I, I don't know. I, well, I, I just look at this stuff, and I, my heart aches for this. I, I ache for this. It's been a dominant theme in my, in my secret life, in my prayer life, in my thoughts, in my ambitions about what I am so hungry for, is, is in the Old Testament we see the glory of the Lord hovering over a nation, visible, physical, manifested presence of God. It's interesting. He would appear in a cloud, and he told Israel, he says, I appear in a cloud, and I don't let you see my form because I know you are idolatrous, and you would create an image after that form. So I don't let you see anything specific. And the greater tendency we have towards creating formulas to that measure, he will cause his appearance for us to be mysterious and mystique without label. I, I, I Personally, it's just a thought, but I think the more we have dealt with the issue of trying to create not idols, we're not going to create an idol to bow down to. But does it make sense to you? There are times we discover or create formulas of how to do the Christian life that actually dictate our life more than the actual presence does. Is that not the same thing? Something we created out of what we saw. <laughs> wow. Amen. I hope you all are taking notes so you can try to f decipher what he's saying later as none of this makes any sense. And so I look at these things in Scripture. I see the story with Moses. He goes up on the mountain. It's a favorite story. It's tough to beat that one. comes down shining. That happened to a guy who wasn't born again. Un under an inferior covenant. So Moses wasn't a believer? He didn't have faith and trust in Christ? He wasn't regenerated? Huh. What do you think he might have planned for you? According to Isaiah 60, he said, I will appear upon you. That's what he said. He said his glory, Jesus is the glory of the Father. It's, 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 a mis it's a mystery, but these lights, light is coming from something. There's a source and then there's a light. In Hebrews 1, it, he, the writer of Hebrews described Jesus as that which comes from the Father. 
All right? And this prophecy, I believe, links you with his eternal purpose. Links me. Links us with what God is saying to in the earth. And that is, God says, all right, you were born for glory. You fell, fell short. You've been saved. You've been born again. Here's why. I'm going to appear upon you. Maybe you're not interested in that. I don't know. But this, this makes me extremely excited. This is what I look like when I'm extremely excited. has needed the gift of discernment to, to tell I, I did an interview once and at the end of this interview you know they want to interview me about something in ministry and so I did and at the end I, 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 sit, I smiled and, and they shut down the cameras and went on and then he showed me the video the, I watched it the smile didn't show up on the screen I thought you're kidding me that's the way my face works when I'm smiling I've been, I've been working now for decades trying to get my face to cooperate with what I'm feeling. I'm sorry, I'm getting into personal stuff now. The glory will be seen upon... My family's enjoying this way too much. Way too much, that bothers me. The, the glory will be seen upon you. Say this with me. This with me. The glory of God. The person of Jesus Christ. Will be seen upon me. Verse 3. Gentiles, which in the context of the, com- the contrast is Israel and Gentiles. In other words, the saved and the unsaved. That's the contrast. The Gentiles will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Why would kings come to the brightness of your rising? Because Jesus is the desire of the nations. Kings coming to the brightness of my rising? Kings know they have a responsibility to lead the people to this value. All right, one more passage. Go to Malachi, or some would say Malachi, the Italian prophet. Now, I can preach all day long in Isaiah 60 and its relevance in New Testament life because as far as I'm concerned, it is 100% targeting you and me in this era because Jesus is that light which came into the world. I believe that Malachi 4 is connected to it. Now remember what we looked at in Isaiah 60. It's the contrast of light and darkness. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples. 
Dick Joyce, who is a wonderful friend of ours and of this house, years ago shared with us a prophetic word. And this word was when a jeweler takes a diamond out of the case, he puts it against the backdrop of black velvet. And the light that shines from overhead, you'll notice overhead, every counter in a jewelry store, there's a wonderful light. And they put the diamond against the backdrop of black velvet because the brilliance of the diamond is, is seen better against the backdrop of darkness. And the Lord uses, the, the devil never makes a decision and wins. He steps in a hole every time he takes a step. He always overplays his hand. He never wins. Every loss you've ever experienced was temporary. Every victory is eternal. Um, are you hearing any clear biblical exposition going on at all here? Verse 1 of chapter 4, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. The day which is coming up shall burn them up, thus uh, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, it's a day of judgment. But what I want you to see is that the Lord raises up a righteous group of people so that people are saved out of that judgment. All right? Verse uh, what? Let me read this in context from a decent translation. I'll start at verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Hmm, I don't see anything about us being a light to save the wicked out of judgment. Weird. Two, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Son of righteousness arising. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Uh, and the light will appear upon you. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a combination. Isaiah 60 has darkness and light. Malachi does as well. I just think it, it highlights something for us that I think is rather fun. Verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. This can't be talking about heaven uh, because there'll be healing. You won't need the healing anointing in heaven, trust me. <clears throat> And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. <laughs> yeah, put that promise on your refrigerator. <laughs> this should make you happy. The Son of Righteousness will arise. Why do you arise? Because he first arose. 
You arise in his arising. With healing in his wings, you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. I wanted to read this passage for you for this reason. Um, if, for those of you that when you read a passage like this, think it's the Lord's anger against people, shift the focus. Because in the justice of the Lord, in the Old Testament, to show the severity of sin, people were blamed for sin. In the New Testament, when somebody is forgiven, the devil is blamed for influencing the sin. How else can Jesus not only free captives, but free prisoners? Captives are bound because of what somebody else has done to them. Prisoners are bound because of what they've done wrong. Jesus releases guilty people. And after he releases the guilty people, he doesn't punish them for what caused the imprisonment. That's a big deal because there's folks in this room that have physical affliction that you think you earned. Not once you've been forgiven, you didn't earn it. The old you, the one that was crucified with Christ, did, but not you. That one's dead, was crucified with Christ, and you actually are alive in the resurrection of Christ. And just the thought that you have this problem in your body or in your life, in your marriage, whatever, because of what you did wrong, living out of that will, will cause you to live out of the old covenant, not the new. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The day is coming that will expose the tragedy because of darkness. You will grow fat, full of anointing and the richness in Christ, and you will trample on the powers of hell. They will be as ashes under your feet. Not things to be burned, things that he's already destroyed, and you'll get to trample all over what he has already been victorious in. It's just the lot in life that you're stuck with. So suck it up. Just listen to this. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. The Bible says elsewhere that the word of God is the mirror. This passage identifies what you see when you look in the mirror. Many people have thought, and I have thought this in days past, that you look to the word, the scripture, and you find out what's wrong. And yet this passage says, you look in the mirror, and all you can see is the glory. The mirror is to expose, not what you've done wrong, but what he's done right. This is literally just a litany of absurdity. I mean, how do you even correct this? I mean, because... It's not that it's wrong. It's not even right. It's just 
silly. And if your approach to the word depresses you, you're coming at it through the old covenant. Now, it doesn't mean he can't correct. doesn't mean he doesn't discipline. doesn't mean he doesn't speak. Uh, John 15 says, to, he said to his disciples, he says, you're clean. You're pruned already. You're disciplined already because of what I've spoken to you. That's how he disciplines us. He, he says, uh, guys, what were you talking about? Uh, you actually think that one of you is greater than the other? That's what you were talking about? And he brings a child, puts it on his lap, and says, this is how you become great. You become like a child. What did he just do? He just pruned off a couple branches that had grown wildly off this vine. He says, yeah, well, I think we'll cut here and we'll nip right here. All growth is rewarded with pruning. So it's not as though that element of the scripture is lost, but he has you look into the word so that you can go from glory to glory. Because what you'll see is what he's done for you. Arise, shine. Why? Because he, the light, has come. And he has chosen to rise on you. His resurrection was a resurrection for you that you and I get to enjoy. And then he says, I'm going to actually arise upon you and I'll be seen on you. And it's going to be so dramatic that even kings will put down their agendas and they will come to you. The stand. Now they're standing for that. He's made it about them. And you notice the technique. He'll quote a passage and then start talking about it. It's like he's circling it. And each time he makes a circuit, he changes a little bit about it. So that at the end, it sounds like he's still talking about that passage, but he's not. He's added his own gibberish spin on it. That makes me happy. Extremely happy. Yes, I'm, I'm in extreme glee right now. I'm... I'm about to break loose with uncontrollable dance. <laughs> Pray for my family this week. I've, I've been pondering this word since 1979. Now, it sounds really religious, and wow, he's been pondering this word from since 1979. But does he even remotely have a grasp as to what this passage really means? From what he just preached? Not even close. I want you, I want you to take it personal. The light doesn't produce light because of its labor. It produces light because of its connection. That heartfelt connection, you can't help but shine. I don't care what you think, what's going on in your life. I I don't mean that it doesn't matter to me. I mean, it just doesn't determine the outcome. Get up. Why? Because he rose. 
and he wrote for you. And staying in that connection, just that abiding fellowship, you cannot help but shine. People will come to you. I've, I've had this happen more times than I, I mean, I celebrate every one, but you'll walk past a person and somebody say, what was that? It, it's not because, it's not because you have extraordinary faith. It's not because you did anything bold or it's just, you just, they connected. And you walk into a room and suddenly people think and see different because you're there. Here's the deal. If you'll keep in mind it's him, he'll bring kings to your doorstep. He'll bring the leaders of various realms of society to you if you remember where it came from. It's just how he changes things. So maybe Obama will come to your door asking about it. Say this with me. I was born to carry the glory. Wow, this is getting freaky. He, the king of glory, will be seen upon me. Others will come to this light. His light. The light of Jesus Christ. The resurrected one. And that's my lot in life. That, that little thing he had him recite was all about them. Now, I admit that Jesus was mentioned in that little litany of um, meanness, but uh, that was really all about them. That wasn't about Christ. Talking about Jesus or Jesus' talk is different than actually preaching and proclaiming him and what he's done. And by surgically removing those passages from their context, he was able to speak as little about Jesus as was necessary to create the impression that he was preaching about Jesus without really giving too much of the details about Jesus and really proclaiming him. And instead, really proclaiming them. Isn't it exciting that uh, kings and leaders are going to come visit you if you can just rise and shine? You know? Uh Uh-huh. Man, I'm ready to go another hour. It's just that that other group that's coming, so I have to. Please don't. Yeah. All right. It's all good news. No, you didn't actually preach the good news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. I didn't hear the good news preached at all in this thing that you called a sermon. So, Lord, I ask that this week... All right, we're we're done. He doesn't get to pray for us. Just frightening. Absolutely frightening. I mean, it was a train wreck from the word go. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 60, but let me first tell you about this prophecy about the generation of kids that that God's setting apart for some creative act because the devil overplayed his hand on 9-11. Right, yeah, uh uh-huh. And even when he was exegeting the text, he, he was interrupting so much with other prophetic visions that, you know, tough to tell what was really going on. And like I said, he started his biblical exegesis at the tail end of Isaiah. 
we have no clue what's really going on, but he was able to make it and wrestle it and and then you know and then the technique again. Read the passage and then begin to talk about the passage. It's it's like circling it. Every time you make the circuit, you change a little bit about it. You change this, and then the next time around you change that, and then the next time around you change that, and the next time around you change this little thing, and by the time you're done, you're not quoting the text anymore. You're quoting all of the changes. And none of it's biblical exegesis at all. And what was missing? Christ and him crucified for our sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You can't talk about the glory of God without clearly, clearly talking about Jesus Christ and what he's done. You can't talk about the arising and shining without clearly explaining in unmistakable terms how that relates back to Jesus Christ the light that came into the world that the darkness did not overcome and Isaiah 60 is really a call in context for Israel to repent of her idolatry and her wickedness and at that time Israel was experiencing the same problems that Jeremiah was preaching against. False prophets, whom God did not send, preaching their own dreams and visions, and not preaching the word of God or faithfully handling his word. And how does God describe it in Jeremiah 23? That they're doing that so that they would forget the Lord. And that's the thing about these types of sermons. At the end of it, God is really kind of an afterthought. What he's really truly done for us is not really preached or proclaimed. So people don't know what it is that he's really done. And he becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And you become bigger and bigger and bigger. All with God talk, of course. But at the end of that sermon, could you clearly explain to me anything, really, that God truly has done in history for us? I mean, he did mention the resurrection. I mean, that's kind of important, yeah. But aside from that, can you, do you really know anything that really God did for us after listening to that? Do you know anything about what God really thinks about sin? Did you hear anything about repentance? I might have heard a fleeting thought about forgiveness, but I mean, was there anything that you can somehow understand God's thinking lucidly, comprehend it and apprehend it, and dwell on it and think on it, and thank and praise God for? Oh yeah, well, God spoke to so-and-so, and said this or said that. It's funny. I think he did a better job of exegeting those so-called visions and dreams that he claimed were from God. He did a better job handling those dreams and visions than he did the biblical text. And Jesus got lost as a, pro as a result of that. Sad.
All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click on one of them or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for your sins, and his victorious resurrection from the grave for your justification. Amen. Amen.